0: Episode 20 of the Giants of the Faith podcast. My name is Robert Daniels and I'm the host of this show, where we focus on individuals from the age of the church who have lived out their faith in a unique or interesting way. They are people who are giants in the history of Christendom, and each is in my personal Christian Hall of Fame. I'm pretty excited that this show has reached 20 episodes, and to celebrate this milestone, we're going to take a look at the life of one of the giants among the giants, Augustine of Hippo. Augustine is recognized by churches of all stripes, Protestant, Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, well, sort of, as an important church father. His impact is summarized by historian Dermid McCullough in his book, Christianity, the First 3,000 Years. Augustine's impact on Western Christian thought can hardly be overstated. Only his beloved example, Paul of Tarsus, has been more influential, and Westerners have generally seen Paul through Augustine's eyes. Aurelius Augustinius Hipponensis was born on November 13, 354, in the small town of Thagaste, part of the Western Roman Empire, and located in present-day Algeria in northern Africa. His parents were Patricius and Monica, and he had two siblings, a brother and a sister. His mother was a devout Christian, and his father was a Roman pagan who worked for the Roman government. Monica was allowed to raise the children as Christians, and Augustine was drawn to his mother and connected with her much more than he did with his father. As a lad, Augustine did well academically, and he showed much promise. His parents were not wealthy, but they saved what they could, and when he was 11 years old, sent him to a better school in the neighboring town of Madara. While away at school, Augustine was a bit of a scamp. He was exposed to pagan philosophy, and he made some bad friends. He recounts a tale of naughty behavior in his autobiography, Confessions. Basically, he and some of his friends stole some pears off the trees in a neighbor's orchard. They did it not to eat them, but just to throw them down to the pigs. He stole because it was not permitted. He says, It was foul, and I loved it. I loved my own error. Not that for which I erred, but the error itself. After a few years, the money for school ran out, and Augustine ended up back at home. When he was seventeen, though, his parents were able to send him to Carthage to university to study rhetoric. Carthage was a major city, and Augustine was country come to town for sure. And again, Augustine fell into bad company. The other young men there bragged about their sexual exploits, which led Augustine to seek out his own conquests. He took on a concubine who bore him a son, a Deodatus. But he was still a bright fellow and he threw himself into his studies. He read with great interest Cicero and the Manichaean philosophers. He credited Cicero's Hortensius with inspiring him to seek the truth, and it set him on his spiritual journey. Unfortunately, that journey began with his attraction to Manichaeism. Manichaeism is a religious philosophy started by a third-century Babylonian named Mani. Mani was the son of Jewish-Christian parents who, as a young man, began to have dreams and visions that he believed were from God. He traveled, seeking wisdom, and eventually he made his way to Persia. While in Persia, he became associated with the royal family and he developed his Gnostic philosophy as a kind of resurgence of Zoroastrianism. He taught that the universe is dualistic, there is a good spiritual world of light and an evil material world of darkness. Through time and circumstance, matter was gradually leaving the dark world and returning to the light world. Many proclaimed himself as the final prophet, following Zoroaster, Buddha, and Jesus. It was, for a time, the chief rival to Christianity in the region. Augustine was attracted to the clearly defined morality of Manichaeism. In Manichaeism, it was easy to tell right from wrong. The spirit was good, and the material was wrong. And it was the religion of the intellectual elite of the day, which Augustine desperately wanted to become a part of. After he graduated at Carthage, he returned to the Gaste for a short time to teach rhetoric and a little bit of Manichaeism on the side. He lived with his mother, his father was dead at this point, and he tried to hide his Manichean views from her. Remember that she was a very devout Christian woman and had raised her son in the faith. Christian faith is personal, however, and at this point in his life, Augustine had rejected it. Eventually, Monica found out about Augustine's conversion and she kicked him out of the house. So he returned to Carthage, where there was more opportunity for someone of his talents and interests. Even though she'd kicked him out, Monica did not give up on her son. She prayed for his salvation daily, and she followed him up to Carthage. Augustine made a name for himself as a speaker there, and, through the influence of some wealthy Manichaeist friends, he announced that he was moving to Rome. Monica begged him not to go, and he promised that he would not. Monica returned home to Thagaste, but Augustine had deceived her. In 383, he left for Rome with his concubine and his son. He never married this woman, though he claimed that he loved her deeply, because of the damage that it would do to his standing and his reputation, but he did care for her. They spent a year in Rome where Augustine caught the eye of a prominent Roman official who recommended him for the post of official orator for the city of Milan. At this point, Augustine was on the ladder of success, and he had dreams of becoming a senator. So in 384 he's off to Milan, where as part of his official duties, He was in contact with the Emperor Valentinian II as an imperial speechwriter. The move to Milan proved to be a critical one for Augustine. He had rejected Christianity, in part because he saw it as intellectually lacking. And that's one of the major things that had drawn him to Mani's religion. The bishop of Milan at the time was a man named Ambrose, who was a famed orator. Augustine sought him out, and he struck up a friendship. He later wrote of Ambrose, and I began to love him, of course not at the first as a teacher of the truth, for I had entirely despaired of finding that in thy church, but as a friendly man. He found through Ambrose that a man could be both intellectual and Christian. Ambrose subscribed to the Neoplatonic philosophy, and he applied it to his faith in Christ. And this pulled out Augustine, and at Ambrose's encouragement, he gave up his Manichaeanist beliefs. Augustine began to meditate on all the sins that he'd committed He'd struggled against his fleshly desires for years, but he could not seem to overcome them. At the same time, Monica had arrived in Milan and had declared her intention to find Augustine a proper wife. This would mean giving up the woman he loved, his concubine, and he sent her away. His son stayed with him, however, and his engagement to a Christian woman from a wealthy family was announced. He was struggling to come to terms with competing philosophies and his internal and personal struggles. One day, while out walking in his garden, he heard a child singing. The child was repeating the phrase, Take up and read. It happened that Augustine had a copy of Paul's epistles open on his table, so he picked it up and he read the first thing that he saw, which we now know as Romans 13, 13 13-14. Not in reveling and drunkenness, not in lust and wantonness, not in quarrels and rivalries. Rather, arm yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ, spend no more thought on nature and nature's appetites. He was awestruck. He later wrote, No further would I read, nor needed I, for instantly at the end of this sentence, by a light, as if it were a serenity infused into my heart, all the darkness of doubt vanished away. Upon his conversion, he resigned his post, he sent a note to Ambrose, and with a group of friends and his mother, he left to spend the winter at a country estate. They discussed and read philosophy, And by easter of 387 augustine was back in milan where he and his son were baptized by ambrose after the baptism he and monica left milan to return to their home in africa he broke off his engagement and he put aside his political dreams he was going to devote himself entirely to god on the way the party stopped at the coastal town of ostia to rest while they were alone and conversing on the nature of eternity and the heavens augustine and monica had a shared vision he describes it as if they were talking, and then suddenly their vision shifted as they lifted above the earth and to the heavens where the moon and stars were. They rose above and through the heavens, and approached the heavenly storehouses where wisdom is. And while they were seeking wisdom together, and had just barely touched her, they returned to their earthly senses. Shortly after this vision, Monica died. Augustine was delayed in returning to his hometown of Thagaste by political troubles and a blockade of the seaport. But he finally reached home in 389. Unfortunately, the death of his mother and the loss of his concubine were soon followed by the death of his son and his close friend, Nebridius. This left Augustine feeling cold and alone. He lived on his small family estate for a while in a semi-monastic lifestyle. In 391, he traveled to the city of Hippo, about 60 miles from home, where he would heard about a potential monastery being formed. That Sunday, the bishop of Hippo, a man named Valerius, knew that Augustine was in the audience, and he altered his scheduled sermon to instead preach on the need for priests in Hippo. Who there would be willing to give up their life and enter the priesthood, he asked. The churchgoers, knowing of Augustine and his reputation, probably through the influence of Valerius, basically made him a priest on the spot and against his will. Valerius almost immediately gave over his preaching duties to Augustine, knew the local language much better than he did he even let augustine teach during a convocation of african bishops augustine was very careful to stick to orthodoxy he made it a point to teach the creeds to the bishops and to his church he was intent on teaching the church what it actually believed on a personal note here i think this is an example that many churches today would do well to follow now valerius knew what he was doing He was looking for someone to lead the church's efforts in the fight against the Donatists. The Donatists believed that personal holiness and purity were the proofs of one's faith. They held that anyone that had buckled under imperial persecution was unworthy of the faith, and that the sacraments that any such priest administered were invalid. Their church was the true church, and the Roman church was compromised. There were violent confrontations between the church and the Donatists, and someone needed to put down this heresy, and Valerius thought that Augustine, with his talents at rhetoric, was the man to do the job. In 395, Valerius appointed Augustine as co-bishop of Hippo. Hippo had a firm policy that its bishops could not be transferred to other cities, so accepting this role meant that Augustine was committing to Hippo for the rest of his life. A year later, Valerius died, and Augustine took sole possession of the office. Fighting heresies was his number one job. First, he put the nail in the coffin of Manichaeism. He held a public debate with a man named Fortunatus, a leader of the Manichaeists. Augustine won the debate easily, and Fortunatus left town in shame, and the movement in the area flittered out. With that done, he turned his attention to Donatism. He tried negotiating with the Donatists, who were backed by wealthy landowners, when they rejected his efforts came to support governmental action against them. Augustine began to write and preach against them. He was so effective that the Donatists, rightly, began to see him as the chief threat to their church. They even plotted to kill him. In 405, the empire outlawed Donatism, but that did little to end the conflict. In 410, the city of Rome fell to the barbarians. Many Romans fled south to Africa, and some ended up in Hippo. Some brought with them the feeling that Rome fell because it had rejected its gods and that the Christians were to blame. Augustine worked hard to counter this claim and to care for the refugees. Many throughout the empire saw the fall of Rome as the end of civilization. They'd placed their hope, intentionally or not, in the secular powers. It's against this backdrop that Augustine began to work on his masterpiece, The City of God Against the Pagans. In this work, which took about 15 years to complete, And was released in drips and dribbles. Augustine contrasts the heavenly New Jerusalem against the transitory power of Rome and earthly authorities. This revolutionized Roman Christian thought and placed the proper emphasis on the heavenly. Finally, in 411, the Donatist conflict came to a head. The government convened a debate in Carthage aimed at ending the controversy. Each side was asked to send seven bishops to testify. Augustine was among the Catholic representatives. But the Donatists, ignoring the request, sent hundreds of their own bishops, and each presented himself to Marcellinius, the man responsible for settling the matter, with a challenge that the church should show their own bishops for each city represented, which of course they couldn't do. Despite this show of strength, the Donatists requested a delay in the debate in order to better prepare their case. Augustine agreed, over the concerns of the others on his team, confident in his own arguments, he was vindicated once the case was decided in his favor, after all the arguments were concluded. In addition to Donatism and Manichaeism, Augustine also fought for orthodoxy against Pelagianism. The Pelagius was a monk from Britain that taught that man did not suffer from the effects of original sin. Men sinned because they wanted to, and not because of any predisposition. He believed that man could, of his own free will and in his own strength, reach a state of divine perfection. The obvious outcome of this line of thinking is that man doesn't need a savior. If he can become morally perfect through his own power, what need has he of Christ? The church recognized this heresy for what it was, and Pelagius was excommunicated in 417. But one of Pelagius' followers, an ex-bishop from Rome named Julian, picked up his banner. He published articles attacking Augustine, trying to position him as being from the lower classes and an outsider from Africa who was taking over Roman Christianity. Augustine answered in kind. They debated via letters for years. One of the most interesting points of contention was around predestination. Julian basically argued that one can gain salvation through his own action. Augustine took the position that only the grace of God could lead men to salvation, that only God knew and chose who would be saved. The Roman Empire was under siege from enemies on all sides. One man a general named Boniface, had been instrumental in fighting off the Visigoths in Gaul and the Vandals in Africa. Augustine became friendly with Boniface, and after Boniface's wife died in 420, Augustine traveled to meet Boniface at the edge of the Sahara Desert to plead with him to remain in his post and not enter the monastery. Boniface agreed. He didn't just stand guard, however. Boniface begins consolidating his power in the region. In 426, Boniface went to Ravenna, and he found a new rich wife and several concubines. When he returned, he led a revolt against Rome, and he claimed the title as the Count of Africa. He expected support from Augustine and the other bishops in the area, but what he received instead was a sharp rebuke. Augustine urged him to give up and unite with Rome against the Vandals, who would surely take advantage of the confusion to strike. And that's exactly what happened. In 429, the Vandals invaded North Africa. They met little organized resistance, and the populace fled to the safety of the cities. Hippo, where Augustine was bishop, was a fortified city, and many refugees found their way there. Augustine was responsible for caring for these people, and one of the refugees was a bishop named Pisidius. Pisidius had been one of the men living the monastic lifestyle on Augustine's estate in Tagaste. Pisidius played an important role of helping Augustine organize the many writings and sermons that he'd produced through the years. He even wrote a surviving biography, The Life of Augustine, that you can read online. Eventually, the Vandals laid siege to Hippo in the summer of 430. Boniface was there to defend the city, but by this point, Augustine would have nothing to do with him. In the third month of the siege, Augustine became sick, and he secluded himself in his rooms, where he spent his last day studying the Psalms, praying, and lamenting his sins. He died on August 28th, 430. He was 75 years old. Hippo was eventually overrun by the barbarians. They burned the city to the ground, all except for the church and the library. And therefore, Augustine's writings survived, and his influence continues today. He was canonized by the Roman Catholic Church and named Doctor of the Church. So that's the life of Augustine. There is a lot more meat to his life story. And I've really only given a skeletal outline here. But even at that, this is one of the longest episodes of this podcast. I had to leave a lot on the cutting room floor. Augustine wrote over 240 books, and he published many other shorter writings and sermons. There were groups that, while he was still living, wanted to canonize some of his works as scripture. He wasn't a perfect man, and he would be the first to tell you that. His views on Mary will bother any Protestant believer, He was also a vegetarian, so that's another strike against him. But on the main, his impact on the church and Western society has been a good one, and we owe him a great debt. Well, this ends another episode of Giants of the Faith. I hope you've enjoyed it, and I want to thank you very much for listening. The response to the show has exceeded all of my expectations. As this episode is published, the show has been downloaded over 2,000 times from 28 different nations. There are listeners from places as varied as Ghana, New Zealand, and the UAE. And I really value each and every one of you. If you have any comments or corrections, please send them along to podcast at giantsofthefaith.com. I'd be very happy to hear what you think of the show and what you'd like to hear in the future. Until next time, God bless.